Welcome to The Coaching Cast, your working from home managers club. Here to check in with you weekly to share your working highs and lows, remind you that you're not alone and that there's many of us outside of your current four walls all trying to be the best coach, leader, manager and quite frankly human being we can possibly be. I'm Susie, sales and business coach at Future You Business Coaching, currently taking on my hardest coaching assignment to date parenting a toddler who doesn't take too kindly to being questioned. And I'm Lisa, founder of Grip Corporate Coaching, personal performance coach, leader and chief eye roller when it comes to all nonsensical corporate mumbo jumbo which suffocates rather than advocates. In this podcast we aim to explore the leadership and coaching techniques required to navigate and survive the current business environment. Presenting different topics each episode, which we'll discuss with some special guests along the way, sharing ideas, hints and tips for you to take away and try for yourself. We hope you enjoy listening. Our special guest today is Richard Duff, whose CV includes titles such as Sales Director, Senior Leader and most recently CEO. He has worked for some iconic household brands during his career, such as Dyson, Joseph Joseph, and Antler Luggage. Rich started his career in sales and marketing, looking after a variety of customers and accounts. A major step was made at Dyson in the mid-2000s, where the company was transforming from vacuum cleaners to hand dryers, and where he was responsible for sales performance in various countries. His international management responsibility was then extended at Joseph Joseph, the design-led kitchenware brand where he joined the business as one team, all working in one tiny room, while the company grew exponentially, disrupting the market and inspiring a new functionality and aesthetic across the entire industry. From Joseph Joseph, he was asked to join Antler Luggage as sales director, a UK heritage brand that had fallen on hard times and where he was tasked with helping them return to profit. From there, his leadership experience was cemented as he stepped into his first CEO role at Navarino Services, supporting independent hotels across the UK and worldwide. In his own words, being the leader is sometimes really hard, lonely and pressured. But the flip side is the joy of seeing a project delivered, a team member flourish or a five-star customer review. You need to trust yourself and those around you. Rich, welcome to the coaching cast. We are super excited and thrilled to have you join us on today's episode. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you both, Lisa and Susie, and uh, I'm looking forward to the session. We are too. There's so much to talk about uh, and chat with you about. That's a really impressive um, career history there and, and one which uh, we are going to really delve into today and centre around in, in terms of the of the episode. So we're going to be focusing our discussion today with you around the subject of leadership uh, and reflecting on your own experiences and exploring the differences between managing and also leading others. Um, so with that in mind, it would be great to start uh, with you sharing your own personal experience of management, perhaps in those early days of your career. Sure. Um, I think management is something which a lot of early career choices will naturally take you into. Um, leadership, not necessarily, but we'll get to that in a bit. But I think in my own personal experience, and, and my own experience is unique to me, but it's not particularly unique in the world. There's thousands of people who have gone through a similar journey than the one that I've been on. But I think to begin with, the start of that journey is very often in your professional life. Your early roles are responsible for yourself and maybe the performance that you drive. So I started my career in sales and marketing uh, with a large, very large uh, blue chip business called Imperial Tobacco and uh, started in a sales and marketing roles. And you sort of graduate and, and, and move up in those roles. So you start off looking after perhaps some small independent retailers. You then move into key accounts who are slightly bigger with bigger, different demands, then perhaps international accounts. But in all of those, it's still just you responsible for the performance that you drive from your customers. There then comes a time, and it's quite a frightening step to take for the first time, where you have to be then responsible for people in your team. 
And mm-hmm. um, it, it's quite a, for me, it was quite a mental challenge, but it was also one that I absolutely wanted to have. I, I, I recognized that I needed to have management experience. So it was something that I was always looking for and keeping my eye open within the organization to see where those opportunities would arise. Um, but it can be quite a, it can be quite a daunting first step and, and making that change from being responsible for your own output and your own activities and your own results to, to suddenly relying on other people and helping them achieve their objectives is, is quite a, a, a mental step to take. I can imagine. How did you, um, how did you navigate that, that change um, then in, in that instance? Yeah. I, so I mean, for me, I, I, I worked for Imperial Tobacco for seven years. I, I worked across different departments. Uh, it's such a large organization. It was going through an international transformation at the time. Um, in the time that I was there, I joined the business in 1997, and I think probably 95% of its revenue was from the UK. Okay. Uh, and over the next seven years, uh, that switched, and, and the international revenue became 40%, 50% of the business, and the UK had shrunk in half. But it wasn't because the UK had got smaller, it's just the whole organization got bigger. So there was lots of opportunities to move around. There was lots of roles and, and um, uh, career paths available. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. It, it, it took my wife and I and our young family abroad. We lived in Belgium for a couple of years. Um, working across Central and Eastern Europe as we bought a German business and had to integrate it. Um, so a very broad experience from that one company. Um, but throughout my time there, I was really responsible for, um, actually, I did the whole journey. So I started off with small corner shops and then key accounts like a chain of petrol stations and then a national account like a supermarket and then eventually countries and and. Um, you know, the, the, the only thing missing then was sort of a, a group of direct reports and a management structure. So when the time came for me to leave Imperial, it was something that I was looking for. And, and I was lucky enough to join a company at the time was called AC Nielsen, which is now known as Nielsen, uh, which is the data research business uh, based at the time in Oxford. Um, and I joined that business to run a, a, a small business unit looking after young and emerging brands trying to get a foothold into the UK marketplace, predominantly into the UK supermarkets. So at the time, young and emerging brands included ones which we now consider household names, such as Innocent Drinks and, and Goo Puddings and Lavazza Coffee. Um, and I had a team for the first time, and I had eight people in that team of various ages, uh, various years of experience. Uh, and for me, it was a, it was a real challenge. And it wasn't a challenge in a negative sense; it was a positive thing. But it was still a real challenge because I'd never done it before. I had some preconceived ideas in my head as how I would approach it. Um, very early on, realised that they were all garbage. So <laughs> get rid of the preconceived ideas and and start looking at it for what it is here and now. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I, I can look back at it now and think, oh, I made some really basic errors and, and some real sort of judgment errors in terms of communication or, or, or style of working. But in a way, those were important errors to make. And I think that's one of the, the lessons for, for everybody and that I'd want to, to sort of portray is that it's all right to make the mistakes as long as they're not catastrophic. You know, there yeah. are some that are you can't recover from. But making small errors of judgment, making small mistakes is actually a vital part of the learning process because it's, it's better to do them soon so that you then have a, an extended period of time to do it correctly afterwards. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it, was, it was a very interesting time to, to, to start having that management responsibility, be responsible for other people's well-being. So it's, uh, you know, yes, it, being responsible for the results of the team and, and having to justify those results and, and, and work through the, 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 the macros of the business, but at the same time, having responsibility for people's well-being and, and their desire to work and their happiness. And, mm. and that, you don't get taught that necessarily. Mm. Maybe you do now, but, but certainly then it wasn't talked about so much. So um, that was a, that was quite an eye opener and, and actually a thoroughly enjoyable challenge to, to be faced with. It's quite a responsibility, isn't it? 
when you first step into your first kind of management position it is and I think that I think one of the traps that I fell into and I'm sure lots of people do is that you almost build up that sense of responsibility to something massive and mm. and it becomes terrifying and and one of the things that I've learned over the years is that you know the fear of something is always greater than the reality the reality is it's not as frightening it's not as difficult as you build it up to be but at the same time you can't dismiss it it, it is a responsibility and you have to adapt your view of the world to take that into account and going back to some of those um preconceived ideas around management Mm. um can you give us an example of what some of them were that you were perhaps thinking about going into that that role of how you had to be a manager or or act in a certain way or do certain things I i think that it depends on where your first management experience comes from but for me it was um it was a transition from being part of the team to managing the team. Um, So it was still in the same role, still in the same function of the business. So I think the obvious temptation is to say, okay, well, I've, what I've been doing is working, so I must be right. So it's very tempting to take your team and say, okay, I've got the answer. I know how to do this. If you just do it the same way as me, we'll all be successful. And that's simply not true. Because everybody operates in different ways. Everybody has um, different um, motivational drivers, um, different pressure points. And, and, and you can't simply mirror image. One, one successful way of operating cannot be mirrored across the entire team. Um, you know, we're human beings. We're not robots. If, if we were in, well, actually, probably in the next 10 years, there will be some robotics in yeah. some of these roles, <laughs> and it will be completely standardized. But, you know, for us as humans, we've got to recognize the differences that we all we all have with each other. So true. So true. And um, so I know from your kind of time at Nielsen, you um, decided perhaps it was time for uh, a change and to and to move into an area um, which was I think probably really exciting and, and posed some different challenges and that was to yeah. start your your career at Dyson um, and I know the way you went about um, securing your first <laughs> role at Dyson was a little bit different wasn't it so tell us a little bit about it, that. It was so um, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at, at Nielsen and, and it really did what I wanted it to do. I was attracted to go back to a physical product and I wanted something tangible that I could get my hands on. And, you know, there's very few physical products that are as iconic or as unique or as individual as a, as a Dyson vacuum cleaner. Um, so I was very attracted to join that business. And at the time, uh, this is early days of internet. I think we, um, <laughs> you know, we had dial-up modems. We had little paper clips in the bottom corner of our screens guiding us on what on what buttons to press. Um, so searching for jobs was still a manual exercise. And, um, we, you know, a lot of the jobs for consumer goods and FMCG were still advertised in magazines like The Grocer. I phoned the recruiter because you <laughs> could do that in those days. Uh, and they said, no, I'm terribly sorry, that role is filled. And I was like, oh, that's a shame. I, you know, I, I missed it. I missed out on that because I was a bit too slow. And then two weeks later, I read the grocer again and the same advert appeared. And I thought, okay, well, this time I'm not going to go to the recruiter. And so I dialed up um, Dyson's switchboard, uh, the reception desk, uh, and asked to speak to the hiring manager, who is a gentleman called Hugo, um, and got Hugo on the phone and introduced myself. And he said, okay, that sounds interesting. Can you come down tomorrow? Yes, I can. So went down and, and, and met Hugo and his, his senior team, had an interview um, and I think got offered the job by the end of the week. So um, it was kind of a lesson early on that, 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 you know, following the official process had met with a with a block, but clearly the official process hadn't really worked. So the second <laughs> time around, I just thought I'll do my own thing and, and it happened very, very quickly. So uh, yeah, it was great to, to, to join Dyson at that time. Um, a fabulous business, you know, you, if you can imagine I mean, there are other industries, there are other companies that have engineering and technological capability, but I don't think there's so many that are um, effectively household names as well. So I can imagine working for in, in Formula One or into, you know, supercars or things like that. Then, you know, the engineering and technology involved in that in, in aeronautics, perhaps, is, is, is amazing. 
but it's quite secretive and, and it feels inaccessible. Whereas a Dyson vacuum cleaner, it, you know, it, it's something that most people would be aware of and a lot yeah. of people would own. Um, so it's a very exciting business to join. Uh, based in Malmesbury in Wiltshire, there was a, a few thousand people working in the company at the time. Um, and I, I was joining the business. It had already been successful and it had grown very, very quickly. Um, but it was now about to enter a real transition. And, and that was moving away from being a vacuum cleaner company and moving towards being an engineering business with multiple products. And the big sort of product development and the big market development that occurred while I was there was the introduction of the invention and the release of the Airblade hand dryer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was seismic for Dyson because not only was it a new product entirely different to a vacuum cleaner, but it was also a new industry. It was new channels of trade. You know, vacuum cleaners were traditionally sold through electrical retailers like Curry's. Uh, hand dryers are not sold to consumers, they're sold to businesses. So it's a business to business product. And, and the customers for that were architects and specifiers um, and people who were thinking about building an airport in five years time or building a football stadium in three years time. So very long sales leads and, and, and very different dynamic. And it was a challenge for the business, but it was one that, that of course, Dyson succeeded and overcome. Um, and was, was hugely successful at. And for me, in my role, I worked in the international team. Dyson had already established some international subsidiary offices in the larger markets like France and Germany, where they had um, a Dyson workforce that were mimicking what had been done in the UK. Um, but I was responsible for some of the countries who perhaps weren't quite big enough to have that structure on the ground, but still had a demand for the products. So I managed international distributors um, who herding cats is, is a phrase you hear a lot. And, and, and it is a bit like that, because if you can imagine having perhaps 10 distributor partners from 10 different countries, you have 10 different business owners who are very successful. They are CEOs and MDs of their own companies. Yeah. Uh, they speak 10 different domestic languages. They deal with 10 different cultures. They have 10 different marketplaces um, with different competitors, different dynamics. So it's a very interesting um interesting sort of time of of working because it was opening my eyes to all of this true internationalism you know I'd, I'd, I'd seen some of it at Imperial Tobacco but you know at Dyson it became really part of of, of me um, and you know traveling the world meeting these people talking to these people helping and supporting them in, in performing was hugely rewarding um, but then the big change happened for me at Dyson. And and it was small, but in a way huge in that the team I'd run at Nielsen, I inherited. I was now tasked with building a team at Dyson. So I had to recruit for the first time. And and that was a real step change for me. And it's an interesting one where you are expected to be able to do this and (laughs) you feel you can do it, but you've had no training and no access to it. You know, we've we've all been in interviews and we've all learned how we work in interviews, but no one's ever taught us how to run a proper interview from the other yeah. side and yeah. how to interview a candidate. <laughs> so you kind of make it up as you go along and um, <laughs> inevitably get it pretty badly wrong to begin with. And, um, you know, it, it was quite a daunting thing, but managed to get through it and, and started to build a team. And, you know, it, it was rewarding to be able to do that. Um, and at the same time, the thing that everybody in my career path was needing at that time was PL responsibility and, and having that scale. And it felt so, so important that having built a team and got some people to, 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 to act as a group with you was tick number one. Tick number two was scale. You needed, yeah. you needed responsibility because you needed to be important to the organization. And in large organizations, when you come from a sales and marketing background, that can be quite difficult, particularly if you're on this, or at the time, particularly on the sales side. So bearing in mind that this is, you know, 15 or 16 years ago, you know, the marketing discipline would be very structured and very formulated. You know, people who'd come through a marketing career path would have lots of letters after their name. They would be, yeah. you know, they'd have diplomas, they'd be members of the Chartered Institute and all of those things. Salespeople actually didn't really have any of that there wasn't really anything you kind of 
um, got by on your wits and your personality. Um, that's all changed now, of course, 15 years later, it's almost flipped the other way because e-commerce has destroyed a lot of the old marketing principles, whereas actually the, the likes of Salesforce and, and electronic support systems for the sales process has actually formalized the sales process a little bit and, and, and given stage gates that you can go through. But at the time, it, you know, marketing was a discipline, sales was a, a, an activity. Um, so you needed something to go with it. You needed something to separate yourself from everybody else who's in the same position. And, and that felt as though it was P&L responsibility. So, you know, the, a lot of people, I think, probably in their, you know, middle career are faced with this dilemma of how do I get myself above the crowd? How do I become important to my boss's boss? What's going to be my big ticket? Um, and I was no different. I was searching for that. And, and you know, having a team was was great. And, and having growth in my market brought money and brought responsibility. It brought scale. But ultimately, it was still a small percentage of the total business. You know, the business is stratospheric growth and my team is doing really well, but from a really, really small base. So yeah, it, it, it still didn't feel as though it was really sort of making a huge difference. So it was a contribution and I thoroughly enjoyed working at Dyson and it's a great company. I, w- I wouldn't say a bad thing about it. Um, but for me, it was it was never going to be where I stopped. It, it was a stage gate. It was a stepping stone for me. Okay. Going back to that P&L piece, because I've spent a lot of my career so far in sales, and I'd say that that kind of focus on managing a, a large P&L that gives you that scale, that visibility internally and also externally with the customer as well, is still very much at the center of a, of a sales function. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> with the benefit of hindsight now, <laughs> Do you think having or, you know, working towards having that responsibility of such um, a large scale P&L has impacted in um, a positive way your leadership style? Or do you think actually, you know, it didn't particularly contribute a huge amount to the type of leader I am now? Um, It's a difficult one because I think you can... You know, businesses are different, industries are different. And, you know, if I think of the tobacco industry, it's, it's, a, it's a multi-billion pound industry, whereas Dyson was a multi-million pound business. Yeah. And then other companies might just be a five million pound business. So I almost look at it another way and think, okay, my P&L responsibility, there's, there's a fiscal number attached to that, but also think about well, what percentage of the company is that? You know, what, what does that represent? And, and maybe think of it that way a little bit more because it's about the influence that you have on the, on the total performance of your environment um, and, and of the company itself. So if your responsibility is 10% of, of the total business, that's great, but that 10% might be, 500,000 pounds or it might be 550 million pounds you, okay you know, that's the difference to make but it's still 10 percent. And, and and i think that's the looking back that's the lesson i would sort of say to myself is don't get sucked in by the number think about the level of responsibility it represents okay i think that's a brilliant uh hint and tip there um for mm-hmm. any especially any commercial um leaders who are probably in that middle management position or are aspiring for a more senior role within that kind yeah. of sales function. Um, I think you can easily get um, blinded by that desire to just have, have that responsibility for such a large P&L. But I think reframing it and looking at it in, in that particular way is, is really helpful. Yeah, and I think the other thing that, that, that you've got to understand as soon as you can is that, of course, you don't do this on your own and, and the success is not yeah. just yours, you know? So, um, you know, having that responsibility is not, it's not all down to you. you you've got to build your support network around you and that might be your direct team, but, but more importantly, it might be other individuals in other functions across the business. So, you know, one of the things I learned at Dyson almost by accident, but it, but I, I recognized it and I've done it since, is that actually striking up conversations as you pass by the marketing department or as you pass by supply chain and logistics or you know having conversations with some of the intellectual property lawyers who sit in a little bubble at the end of the room. You know, and, and, and you know, 
almost to the point where you could say, get yourself out there, but not in a sort of showbiz way. It's yeah. just open yourself up to other perspectives and different conversations because you're all still working for the same company. You're all still aiming for the same thing. And the more you can arm yourself with those other perspectives, the more genuine, authentic and successful your efforts will be. Be curious. <laughs> be curious. But, but, but not curious. I would say not curious just flicking through the books and, and looking at the academics, you know, yeah. be curious about people and communicate with, with people because that's where you get the real truth. Okay. Lisa, I know you'll be dying to ask Rich <laughs> a question by this point. Um, so There's so much is there. there. Any, there's so much there. I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know where to start. I'm still fascinated by it. Dyson absolutely blows my mind as a company because I just think, they're so forward thinking and revolutionary and whatever they've done. I mean, I've got a Dyson yeah. hairdryer, which I think yeah. is incredible. And the fact that they've tr like transferred from so many different sectors, but with this incredible like technology and still the same vision and um, brand is, is, I just think it's quite extraordinary. What an incredible company to like be a part of. Um, uh, absolutely. And, and, and I think that visionary piece is the most important bit because, you know, when I, when I joined the business, James was still working in the office every day um, and actually would sit 20 meters away from, from my sort of desk area. Um, and he had already done this for years, but, but very clever in that he had realized that actually his desire and his skill set was not necessarily in running a multi-million pound international business. So you had an executive board to do that. His passion was still creating and innovating and, and discovering new things. Um, and, you know, Dyson was a vacuum cleaner company. It had a washing machine at the time, but it hadn't really worked particularly well. And I think that had, had hurt James a little bit. And he was determined that any other product was going to be a success. If it was going to go to market, it had to be a guaranteed success. And, and Airblade was that. Um, they then also launched the small battery-powered vacuum cleaner, the handheld vacuum cleaner, which was the first of its type. But there were so many products that didn't make it to market. And, and I, I'm not going to tell you because they are trade secrets and there's, <laughs> there's sensitivity around it, but there were so many amazing solutions to everyday problems that were being worked upon, which, and some of them went through all of the testing, all of the stage gates, almost to the verge of release, but still were not released because James and his senior team were just not quite convinced that it was 100% correct mm -hmm. and didn't want to risk the reputation of the brand, the reputation of the business on something which could then be attacked. And that strength of determination is, is hugely, um, I think it's rare, especially in the commercial world, but it's also hugely um, useful to recognize and I've tried to take that a little bit into my further career as well. Mm. And I think it's really interesting what you described there around how James built the team and resource around him that he required mm. to support him in his endeavours, recognising that actually he's the creator and he's comfortable with that, but he needs the support of other people's skill sets to, to launch his ideas and to get them out there. And he can't do it all. And it's not yeah. all just about him. And, and there's no expect, there should never be that expectation that as a leader, you are everything. And I do think that's one of the, I don't think it's necessarily a, it's a myth that I think new leaders assume. Yeah. And actually for those of us who've then gone through that personal development and quite typically have got it wrong um have realized rather quickly which is oh no I don't I don't need to know everything um and actually the more I understand what my strengths are the more I can utilize them and the more I can emphasize them and that actually is a good thing for me because I'm doing more of what I enjoy I can yeah. get into my flow because you can relax into your skill set because you're you're doing what you love and it's what you what you're good at and equally, you can support other people to do exactly the same thing by yeah. bringing them into your circle and supporting them with their strengths and utilising their strengths so that you're actually working much more efficiently and effectively as a team. Yeah, I think I think so. It, it's, you know, one of the, you know, links to that is, is one of the, the, the sort of the, the areas of leadership, which a lot of people get wrong is, is you don't have to be the smartest person. And, 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 you know, to your point, you don't need to know everything and be good mm. at everything. 
but equally you don't have to be the smartest person and actually the really good leaders surround themselves but with people who are smarter than them but they they are smarter in the areas and mm-hmm. and it's it's yeah. it's it's understanding that it's also about understanding humans through communication and learning um, how other people operate and how they work and bringing those two things together allows you to to utilize the best that each individual has and bring it together for the sort of the communal good um, and as a leader you will have some skills and some areas where you are the, the best in your environment but it might only be one or two and and there'll be seven or eight others who are really skilled and, and much more um, higher levels of expertise than yourself in certain areas and, and it's recognizing that and bringing it together that makes a real difference mm. uh, and certainly James you know James would describe himself as chief engineer you know <laughs> he's running a multi-billion pound business which is Britain's most successful export for years <laughs> um, it's growing exponentially his face is in magazines the brand is everywhere there's amazing television adverts uh, yeah but he's just you know he's he he's he's chief of engineering he likes hanging out with the product designers he doesn't want to get involved in any of the other stuff and i i admired that i think that was really really clever really clever thing to do very clever talking of which around product designers i think (laughs) that leads nicely into the next uh phase of your uh career working for a brand which i know we've talked about i am an absolute massive fan of and I could probably talk about them all day um and how good their products are and that's obviously you you transition then to working for Joseph Joseph the kitchenware company tell us a little bit about your time there uh well interesting so again take a half a step back so the Dyson building was actually if you can imagine a giant aircraft hangar split between an upper floor and a lower floor um the commercial side of the business was on the upper floor. So myself and, and teams like the one I was in yeah. all were operating upstairs. Downstairs, where the product designers were, uh, you had a collection of product design labs, you had sounds chambers, we had um, we actually had uh, scientists working on the dust mite colony, um, lots of very technical disciplines. Uh, and there was a bit of a crossover whilst I was working at Dyson. So was another guy, but he was downstairs. We never met, but then a lot of time you didn't. Um, and his name was Richard Joseph. And he uh, left Dyson and started a business with his brother, uh, which spun out of their father's uh, glassmaking business um, and became what we now know as Joseph Joseph. And um, I was contacted by a recruiter saying I've been specifically asked to contact people at Dyson in a sales function because we have this new young up and coming um, company and okay. their product range is uh, it's sold it's through similar channels of trade. So there's relevance there, but also their product range has an engineering advantage or, or, or some functional advantage over its competitors. And and they want to talk to people who are used to talking in that way, which I was because I was talking about vacuum cleaners, which are four times more expensive, but also 10 times better than any any other vacuum cleaner on the market. Um, So I I spoke with Richard and and we we went through the interview process and and, uh, agreed to join them. And I left Dyson at a time where it was probably... 3,000 people in the organization and I joined Joseph Joseph as employee number 11 and (laughs) uh, at the time working in one room and uh, the business had a unit in the Oxford Tower in London by the Thames and there were quite a few sort of young creative businesses in that area because there were some uh, sort of government funding and, and tax advantages for being there and you were only allowed to be there if you were below a certain size Um, So there was 11 of us in the business um, working around two tables in one room. And, you know, and that was such a culture shock from going from an organization where I have a marketing department, a supply chain department, um, (laughs) a product design department to going to a business where there is a supply chain person, (laughs) a marketing person. (laughs) And and, and for myself, it was, okay, I've, I've lost my... P&L scale. I've lost my team. I'm kind of going back again to uh, a sort of starting position, but it was attractive to do so because I could sense and I could see that this business was on a huge upward trajectory. And 
um, introduce premium materials with functional advantage, packaged beautifully with amazing branding and, and building a almost a lifestyle choice around what is a mundane chopping board. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, you know, it takes a lot of passion, a lot of skill to be able to do that. And and Rich and Anthony had built a business that was on that route and, and it grew so fast. And, you know, I, we absolutely kicked the ass out of that industry in four <laughs> years. You know, we went from being a young little itchy scratchy startup that was, you know, at the, at the, at the global trade shows, we had a tiny little stand in the corner and people would kind of bump into us by accident. Four years later, we've got one of the biggest stands in the middle of the room and we are a destination. Um, and it was great. You know, we're surrounded by businesses that were so old fashioned. So a fabulous, fabulous sort of period of growth and, and real Band of Brothers stuff. We're all in it together and you get involved in everything. And, and you know, I, I, I can now look back on that and think, okay, the real transformation for me there was being responsible for sales but actually also being responsible for supporting product development supporting marketing communications um, responsible for supporting the supply chain guys by helping them and, and and buying into the forecasting processes which they were trying to introduce and and as the business grew from being a small business to a medium business to a, to a proper operator all of those um, functions had to grow with it and and being one of the original team members you know I was exposed to all of that and when I left I think there was 85 of us and it's wow. continued to grow since yeah um, so yeah thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable business and you know, it was it was easy to a certain extent because we were young, we were fresh, we had great product, great ideas, great branding, great marketing. Rich and Ants were, you know, photogenic, handsome young men <laughs> in an industry full of old guys, and and you know, it it was a story. Um, and yeah. as you'd expect with a product-led business, winning lots of design awards, Red Dot awards, National Housewares awards. But but really, the sign of maturity was that the company then also started to win business awards and started to win awards for its organization and for its for its um, company success rather than just a product success. Yeah. And that, I think, was a was probably a, a, a source of great pride for Rich and Anthony. It certainly was for, for me and the guys that were in the business at the time. What's your favorite Joseph Joseph product? <laughs> oh, now you're asking. Um <laughs> There's two that I okay. use every day. Uh, okay. Actually, <laughs> I had a conversation with Rich Joseph about this not that long ago, and actually the product, one of the products has been discontinued, so I'm trying to convince him to bring it back. But they have a, <laughs> they, have a they have a product called a cut and carve, which is a chopping board. I've got it. You've got it. Right, okay. So the, the, there's a, the, the cut and carve is about this size, and on one side it has spikes, and on the other side it's flat. But both uh -huh. sides are, are, are shelved. Yeah. So that as you're cutting meat on the spiky side, the juice runs and collects. As you're cutting bread or something on the other side, crumbs will fall and collect. And it's also got a, a, a thermoplastic rubber edging. So it's non-slip, which means you can stand it up and it doesn't slide down. You can use it, et cetera. All of those things. They do a large one, which is the one that you've probably got. Susie. <laughs> they also do a small one. They did a small one. It was about the size of an A4 sheet of paper. Um, and it turns out that I was probably the only person ever to, to have one. Um, oh really? I yeah, I love it, and I use it every day because it's easy to pick up and move around. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other product is a, a, an Elevate spatula spoon. So they have a, a, a range called Elevates, which are kitchen utensils which have a, a weighted handle and a small pivot base, so that as you put it down, it tips onto the handle and keeps the um, the end of the tool from hitting the work surface. And one of those is a, a, a spoon with a a sort of soft spatula spoon yeah um, which is brilliant because you can stir inside a pan you can pick things up it it cleans your pan as you cook oh. and now if that isn't a reason to buy it i don't know what is i'm on amazon right now just, <laughs> just, just getting one elevate spatula spoon and a, and, a, and a small cutting carve amazing Mine is the stackable Tupperware. Don't know if anyone, oh, yes. if you come up, but you get the stackable Tupperware with the colour coded lids. Honestly, it you don't know you need it until you have it in your life. 
is amazing. <laughs> I was going to say um, we've got a few Joseph and Joseph products as well. My favorite is the the bowls that you get the plastic bowls, and you've got like a big mixing bowl. You've got oh, yeah. a sieve. You've got a colander. A you've got a, it's brilliant, and it just yeah. all sits together inside <laughs> our cupboard. So it's so great listening to you talk about obviously the incredible opportunity you had being part of a startup, which doesn't suit everybody in terms mm. of their career choices because there is a risk in going into a startup potentially, uh, especially a small company, um, and even more so when you've taken the leap. I think from a larger brand such as Dyson to go and join Joseph yeah. and Joseph, but at the same time. Um, obviously it can reap such huge rewards as you've described and I know some people may be listening to it and saying well it's all good and well you join a startup of course you therefore get the opportunity to get involved with all of the departments because it's small but actually that principle is there in a large company too it's totally based on on the point you made earlier which is recognizing the great value there is in networking and building relationships with people and going out and speaking to them and being curious not just about um you know the surface level business area but who they are as people because those relationships will always give return and both in both ways um and i and i do think having that principle in mind whenever you're part of a company of getting to know as many people as you can and getting to know the whole end to end how this all operates is so important you know i I was I'd been at Joseph Joseph for a number of years and I was approached um, to be part of a team to come and try and salvage the antler luggage business. Um, So I was joining, in fact, I'd only ever worked for companies that were on an upward trajectory. um, And now I was joining a business that was really struggling and, and it had gone through some fairly seismic change. It, It had changed its head office location, its entire workforce, it was changing its brand position. It was changing its product range, trying to find the right blend of ingredients to, to help grow the business and, and turn it around from being a bit of a bit of an issue into something where the owners could be proud and, and do something with it. Um, and what I'd learned at Joseph Joseph by being exposed to that hands-on getting a you know, getting your head into all of these elements around the business, you know, not having no support, you know, you generate your own support. Having gone through that learning curve, being able to take that to Antler was was hugely uh, important. It really was, you know, Antler was my, what I would call my first leadership position, true leadership, because I'd made the mental leap from management to leadership, which I'm sure we'll talk about. You'll have some questions, but um you know, one of those, the way it, it sort of demonstrated itself was that on day one, I made it my business to, to get involved with the other functions in, in the company mm. um, because I couldn't be successful in my area of responsibility without those supporting. But also my area of responsibility went beyond my area. It was mm. total company responsibility. So, you know, going back to the PL, my PL was such a huge part of the company. If my PL failed, the business failed. Mm. Um, my role as one of the senior team was so visible that if I failed, it would pull down the entire business. So it was important that that I had the support of those around me. Um, and you only get that from communicating and and having conversations and listening to what they're saying and trying to join those things together and, and, you know, being empathetic to the challenges that they face and how you might be able to help them as well as them help you. And, and all of those things come together. Um, and it was all things that I'd learned without even necessarily realizing I'd learned it, but, mm. but now the recognition that that's what was required to make this work um, and, and putting it into practice. So what were some of those differences then between managing and then leading people yeah i think um i think the responsibility piece absolutely you know as you become more senior and you're moving up in your career then you you naturally inherit responsibilities yeah there comes a point where you then go and seek those responsibilities as well so rather than them coming to you you go and find them and and i think this is one of the big issues about the transition from management to leadership, which I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners will be interested in, is that there's no, so in my opinion, there is no silver bullet it, mm-hmm. because it's down to you as an individual as to when that happens, because the transition is much more in your head than it is anywhere else. 
leadership is about your behaviors and 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 how you get the most out of other people and and how you work with people and communicating and stepping forward that way uh, and it happens at different times you know for some people it still hasn't happened yet and for others it happens late in their career um for me it 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 happens you know pretty much 10 years ago was the start of it and uh you know so i think that it happens at different speeds. And, and for me also, there are some sort of fairly obvious differences. So, you know, management is about managing what you're directly responsible for on paper, whereas leadership is thinking beyond that and thinking, okay, well, what else is there that I could influence? What else is there that, depending on how I behave and how I operate, will that have a positive or negative effect on other areas of the company or other areas of the business? Um, yeah. And, and, you know, thinking beyond your 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 um, your remit that you've been tasked with, um, and then I think the other thing is is you know motivating and inspiring people. I mean, it's easy to say, well, I motivate people and I inspire people. <laughs> I mean, actually, I, you're not the one to say. It's the other people have to have to make that uh, declaration on your behalf, um, and you're not going to motivate and inspire everybody. But if you communicate with enough people and you are empathetic with them, then you will get enough support and you will collectively start to move forward. And, and you know, management is about looking after yourself and your team, perhaps, whereas leadership is, is that plus looking after everybody else and, and trying to think of the greater good. Yeah. And I know for when you were at the um, luggage, you had a bit of a light bulb moment, didn't you, in terms of, where perhaps your career was going to head towards next through through a off the cuff conversation. Yeah, yeah, I've I've had some. Um, I've been blessed with some tremendous managers and some tremendous leaders in my career. The key thing, Antler, was actually an off the cuff throwaway comment from my CEO at the time when I joined, uh, a lady called Julia Reynolds, and. I can't remember even what we were doing. I, I'd sort of shown her a piece of work that I was doing and, you know, just sort of running it past her saying, you know, this is what I've done and I'm about to release it and da, 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 da. And she said, oh, you know, that's really good. You know, you, you, you're going to be a CEO yourself one day and you need to see things like this. And I thought, blimey, you know, no one has ever, no one's ever said that to me before. And it hadn't even really crossed my mind. You know, by this point I'd reached director level, um, and I hadn't really crossed my mind that I had what it took to step into the CEO role. Yeah. And, and partly that's because there is no definition of what you need to step into the CEO role. Yeah. So it's quite hard to, to sort of figure <laughs> out. But, but having someone who was already there and had been doing that, but that one throwaway comment got me thinking about it. And it really, I mean, it transformed everything. It did. It has done two things. One, it made me think it's possible and eventually it has been possible. But more importantly and immediately, it made me realize that actually I was on the right path. That throwaway comment really sort of accelerated my um, activity down those routes, um, which has, you know, served me well in, in, in later on in my career. I think it also demonstrates how, like, beautifully, how powerful someone saying, I believe in yeah. you can be. Yeah. Because I think, you know, as soon as someone says, I believe in you, they're sort of demonstrating their trust in you. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're showing you, I see you and uh, I support you. That comes back to such an important um, skill to remember, which is the power you have on other people, the impact yeah. you have. It's a huge responsibility and you can do such wonderful things with it. You know, yeah. as, you can also you, make a mess of it. As you well. absolutely can. <laughs> you can. You can. But I think it's it's really recognizing the power you have to do such great things that, you know, ultimately you supporting other people with that that notion of belief supports everybody. You know, it yeah. supports yeah. the whole team and it supports you too. You know, actually, Antler, job done. Business was was struggling. We got it back onto a stable platform and with the ability to grow um, and. At that time, I was then approached to completely change industries and join a, a local business to, to where I live. Um, and it, it's completely um, transformed my career and my view of the world because okay. I 
you know, throughout my career, I'd worked for um, consumer goods, product-based businesses, and I was now stepping into a completely different industry, into hospitality. It was almost, for me, seeing the next level above. You know, I'd, I'd reached a sort of a leadership position. I was now moving into a CEO position. But the way that these guys would communicate and uh, articulate was kind of fast-forwarding me another 20 years to think, okay, well, you know, when I've been doing this for so long and I'm so comfortable and I'm so confident and I'm so um, in tune with everything and everybody else, this is how I will communicate. And they were already doing it. And, and, and that for me was hugely exciting. I was joining a business where I felt it was going to, really going to feel like a family. Um, and lo and behold, it, it was exactly that. Um, and joining Navarino has been a, a huge eye-opener for me and it's been extremely rewarding um, for my career. And I've, I've built some really strong relationships with, with people in, in the organization because it is an organization inhabited by people who want to do good. And it's yeah. not just who wants to achieve good or or. or you know, be good, it's do good, which means, you know, sharing it amongst each other. Um, and, you know, I will keep that forever now. And, and, and that's definitely going to be part of my future is, is, is keeping those learnings and wanting to be that good person to help and encourage others to be the same. Amazing. Rich, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you about your career story today. I could probably talk to you <laughs> for another two hours about uh, your experience of leadership. Um, but we always conclude our, our conversations with our special guests with the same question, which Lisa and I also talk about when we do our episodes, which are um, around our hints and tips for our listeners. So okay. um, what would be your three hints and tips for anyone who is currently, I don't know, a mid to senior leader or is just starting out on their leadership journey? Um, okay, so I, I said at the start, it's kind of in your head. You know, the leadership journey is in your head. The transition from being responsible as a manager to being a leader, it, is, is often in your own mind. And I think the number one tip is to learn to trust yourself. And, you know, if you trust yourself, it allows you to then trust others. And, and trusting yourself doesn't mean trusting yourself to get it right all the time. Actually, the best thing to do is to be aware that you're going to make mistakes and be happy to make those mistakes, but trust yourself to, to learn from those and not make them again. Um, and, and, and you just start to to gain this confidence that comes from that, you know, that self-trust emanates and it allows other people to believe in your leadership because you are confident and, and that motivates them to be confident as well. So that's definitely one of them. Um, another, I mentioned it earlier that, you know, the, the fear of something is always worse than the reality. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> it applies to everything. Any challenge you're faced with, any difficulty you're anticipating, Anything that you think, oh, your mind is making it worse than it actually is going to be. So again, with your trust, you know, put those two things together. It allows you to face those challenges with a bit more confidence and, and, and expose yourself to those challenges. You know, that's one of the biggest things of leadership is putting yourself out there into environments which make you a little bit uncomfortable because that's where you'll get the most reward and you'll start to progress. Um, and then yeah embrace getting it slightly wrong you know that, that you know one of the we hear it a lot from the tech companies from silicon valley which is fail fast um you know i heard that in the early 2000s joining the dyson business you know james had had five and a half thousand prototypes that didn't work but each one was a step closer to the one that would work and so that mentality you know take that into yourself and say okay I am going to make mistakes, but that's all right. I'm, I'm, I, as long as I recognize them and I don't let them drag me down, you know, you don't let your mistakes stop you from progressing because you'll actually progress faster and you'll end up more rounded and better thanks to the mistakes you've made rather than the easy wins or the successes that you've, you've had along the way. It is now time for... 
Bullshit Bingo, where we call out phrases which get commonly used in the workplace, which make us cringe. Today's Bullshit Bingo is from John, who witnessed this one being used at work and emailed in. And so today's Bullshit Bingo is... Let's take it for a test drive, referring to trying something out, whether that is a new way of working, training technique or idea before you fully commit. Lisa, thoughts? I'm a bit speechless about it. Let's take, let's take it for a test drive. I think it needs a voice, doesn't it? Like if any, I can take this seriously. It's so cheesy. It's so cheesy. Let's take it for a test drive. I'd rather someone just said, let's just give it a go. It is literally like a personality, isn't it? Like it is. somebody projecting oh my gosh. it. Yes, that's a really great way to describe it. It's exactly like a projection of personality, isn't it? This is so David Brent as well. I always think I would have loved yeah. to have worked in an office like The Office with David Brent. <laughs> and this, I feel like this is exactly the sort of thing that Ricky Gervais would have said as part of that script. Have you ever really? heard this one in your career? Do you know what? I don't think I have. I've heard it, but I don't think I've ever heard it in my job. And to be quite honest, based on my experience and how I generally behaved in the workplace, if someone had said this, I would have probably called it. I probably would have gone, really? <laughs> this is your this is your version of triage for me. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what the hell? It's a brilliant one, though, John. And I just, I would love to know how you reacted when this was spoken about. Yeah. This is something you've recently witnessed. It's brilliant. We need more instant emails from the workplace. So I think when you um, see or hear a bullshit bingo, straight on to hello at thecoachingcast.co.uk. Send us an email. We need to hear them instantly so we can uh, talk about them on the episode. But um, again, taking that literal form, uh, I think nobody particularly would have enjoyed being on a test drive with me when I was learning to drive. Um, so uh, that definitely uh, would probably mean that the particular thing they were test driving in the workplace wouldn't uh, get past. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, John. A great one. Thanks, John. So we're coming to the end of today's episode where we've been speaking with the wonderful Rich Duff about leadership and his journey into becoming a CEO. Our top tips from today, shared by Rich himself, are as follows. Learn to trust yourself, to trust others, and build your own confidence. If you can't trust you, you definitely won't be able to trust anybody else. It all starts with yourself. Number two, the fear of something is always much, much worse than the reality. And I think we've spoken about this a couple of times on the coaching cast. And our general mantra around it is just go for it and see what happens. And generally what you've told yourself is always much worse than actually how it goes. And the third thing is embrace failure. As Rich said, fail fast, learn quickly, and you'll progress a lot quicker. As well as our top tips from Rich, we've also got some questions for you to ask yourself this week, all around supporting you in your leadership journey. Number one is, how would you describe leadership? What does it actually mean to you? Number two, who do you know that displays the leadership qualities you wish to acquire or refine in your style? What can you learn from them and start practicing yourself? The third thing is, what can you recognise that they do differently and how do they do this? And again, think about how you can then learn from that to apply a different approach for the way you lead. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode and have some new ideas to take away and try for yourselves. If you have any questions, thoughts or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. And you can contact us at hello at thecoachingcast.co.uk or on Instagram at thecoachingcast. As always, your support is so important to us and obviously it helps us to really grow this podcast and ensure that we're delivering the best content for you that's really valuable. So if you like what you've heard, then please give us a follow on Instagram at The Coaching Cast. Critically, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and most importantly, subscribe to future episodes wherever you listen. And don't forget, you can find us on YouTube by searching The Coaching Cast so you get to watch us as well as listen. (laughs) And believe me, the watching gives you some additional gems. (laughs) 
Our episode next week is about developing and growing talent, which is a topic you've told us that you would like us to discuss on our most recent Instagram poll. So we really hope you tune in and enjoy listening. Looking forward to that one. We both love music and use it to motivate and energise us. So we like to finish each episode with our personal song recommendation, giving you positivity and energy as you launch into your next Zoom or team meeting. It's my choice this week and I have chosen Savage Garden Affirmations, taking it back to the 90s. And I just love this song. I love what it's about. Uh, So go and take a listen. You're such a 90s child. I love the fact. I love the fact this is Savage Garden. Bloody hell. What's happened to Savage Garden? That's what I want to know. Are they still around? (laughs) Let us know. Let us know if you know what's happened to Savage Garden. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Have a great week. And remember, you've got this. (laughs) 